The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, listening to Bloomberg Westminster this Monday, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. So, Boris is back. He's returned to Downing Street after recovering and recuperating from coronavirus. The Prime Minister, in fact, chaired this morning's Cabinet meeting on COVID-19. He also held talks with senior ministers and officials before he spoke to the public. We are on the brink of achieving that first clear mission to prevent our National Health Service from being overwhelmed in a way that tragically we have seen elsewhere. And that is how and why we are now beginning to turn the tide. Well, the Prime Minister arrived back at number 10 yesterday evening amid mounting pressure from Tory MPs to begin lifting the lockdown and reduce the economic impact. And while Boris Johnson said he understood the concerns for business owners, he did warn that a second peak of the outbreak could lead to, quote, economic disaster. So those are the two issues that are being bandied about now. So what can the Prime Minister do? Well, joining us now is Steve Bry. He's the Conservative MP for Winchester and Chandler's Ford. Uh, Steve, good to have you. I guess let's start start with that issue, uh, especially around the plan to lift the lockdown. This is something that Labour has weighed in on. Uh, some of your Conservative colleagues also talking about this. Uh, do you agree that we need more clarity about how, if not when, this is going to happen? No. I think that, that what we need to do, as the Prime Minister was very, very clear earlier, and I appreciate that Labour have got a new leader in Keir Starmer, and he needs somehow stay in the story. And, uh, you know, for the last few weeks that he's been the leader, he, he has been talking about publishing a plan. You heard Nicola Sturgeon last week talk about a plan, but what she she wasn't really talking about a plan. She was talking about talking about a plan. What the government have set out is very clearly five tests that have to be met before we can move to the next stage of this. And we are we are near being able to make that assessment of those five tests. And you heard the Prime Minister in the clip you just played talked about, you know, the NHS didn't fall over. He's talking about it in that tense, which I think is absolutely right. But let's just be clear here. North of eight hundred people 800 people in the 24-hour reporting period to, to yesterday evening lost their lives in hospitals alone in this country as a result of this virus. There is still a very, very nasty, very dangerous virus out there. And the Prime Minister, and boy should he know, because he was very nearly a casualty of it, is absolutely right to say that we, yes, there is a way of reopening the economy safely, step by step, uh, when he's met those five tests. But we will absolutely not jeopardise what we have achieved, because that would be 
Well, to put it bluntly, wouldn't that just be to to turn our faces on those people that have lost their lives as a result of this or those that have had the battle of their lives and have recovered from this? Steve, isn't there a point, though, that here... OK, you've got the, the tests. That's fair enough. Most people acknowledge that. But it's not just the tests. They're public. It's what happens once those tests have been met, the actual stage-by-stage stage yep. reopening. People saying that's what needs to be on the table. And to treat people uh, not as if they're children. Yeah, and the Prime Minister said that in his statement outside number 10 this morning in London. He, he was absolutely clear that we want the public to be part of a conversation. And, you know, I, I was asked this a couple of weeks ago about this setting out this plan. I think the, the, the truth is that, one, we have probably since Don't Die of Ignorance with AIDS in the 1980s, we have, and I'm and I a former public health minister here, you know, we have probably one of the best and clearest public health messages that we've ever had. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. We've been accused of not being clear. We couldn't be clearer in that public health message. So, so there's not wishing to dilute the clarity of that. And then there's the fact that I suspect that while there are many, many ideas kicking around in government as to what the roadmap out of these restrictions look like, I suspect that is not finalised. And to think out loud in government, that may be something that the president, uh, your side of the pond does, but I don't think we should think out loud in this country. I think that there are ideas that are coming together. So to give you an example, we have been very used to shopping through essential supplies, those of us that have been able to do so, while observing social distancing in supermarkets and small food stores. And I think that we can extend that to other stores that are, that are non-essential, for instance, garden centres, DIY shops and other parts of retail over the coming weeks. And I think that, that is exactly what is being thought of at the moment. And of course, the bigger business who have always been able to work, because clearly you can't work at home if you're building a house, they, they absolutely are being encouraged to, to get back to work, and some of them never stop, but to do so while observing social distancing. So I, I, I understand the impatience, but this is why we said from day one, when we wrote the draft uh, pandemic flu right. plan, which became the coronavirus plan, and I was part of that, that we, you cannot move too soon on restriction because the public get bored of that, and you can't move too soon on lifting because it would be dangerous well, uh, according to the science and to where the virus is spreading so well, that's exactly i it. appreciate so it's frustrating to a lockdown once you do come to a lockdown and you, you talked about the very clear messaging stay at home uh, what is stopping people from abandoning it altogether speaking anecdotally in fact not even anecdotally i'm, I'm starting to see the data behind this the roads are getting busier people are getting out and about mm. as some of these stores are reopening how do you stop that from happening because that is one of the things that could cause this feared second wave well, I mean, ultimately, you stop it through law enforcement, don't you? I mean, I, you know, I was out walking the dog in the Hampshire countryside yesterday. I, I saw the, the neighbourhood policing team out and about. They, they know me. They stopped. We had a chat. And, you know, they, are, they were talking to me about the absolute granular detail of cyclists stopping to have a picnic, who they've had to say, look, this is not appropriate. But you know, I think that, that ultimately that is the sanction that we've got during the announced restriction period, which is that, you know, we have been very clear. You, you stay at home and work where you can work from home. Uh, and 
And when you have to go out, which is for your one piece of exercise a day or to get essential supplies or medical supplies, that you do so while observing social distancing. After the restriction period, now that's of course different, um, you know, then, then the government will make new announcements about what it expects and what it will, uh, what it will and what it won't enforce. But we're not there yet. Yeah, and that, I think ultimately the, problem, the, the, public, the public may get one step ahead of this. And the business got one step ahead of this in the way that they closed down. Remember the government, a long time ago, it seems now, the government were talking about don't go to pubs and restaurants. Pubs and restaurants were contacting MPs like me saying, for, for Lord's sake, please order us to close because we need that clarity. Uh, but they, So they then closed themselves ahead of being forced to do so. And you may see that in reverse, but you won't see it until the end of this three-week period is up because otherwise the enforcement powers are very clear in the legislation that we oh. passed before recess. All right, all right. So what about the issue at the core of all this, which is, is the lockdown now potentially doing more harm, uh, even in terms of the numbers of lives lost, uh, than if it was gradually released and, and the risk from the virus? There is a balance to be struck here. I'm not just talking about the economics, I'm talking about the social, mental health aspects of all this. That has to be in the mix. Yeah, it does have to be in the mix. And there is going to be a big social and mental health cost to this. But, but yes, and there, will, and there will be people who lose their, their, their lives as a result of people taking their lives. But let's just go back to the figure here. North of 800 people lost their lives as a direct result of the virus in the last 24-hour reporting period. That has to be our primary focus to making sure that we continue to save lives from the, the shielded categories. And there is a big debate, and I see it on my inbox as a constituency MP at the moment, of people in the over-70s category saying, you know, don't think you're going to tell us to stay at home while everybody else stays out. And, and, I, and I understand that. Of course, I have family members who are in that position themselves. But the alternative is that you risk your life. And so, you know, it is a a devilishly difficult balancing job the Prime Minister have has as he returns to work this morning. But you know, he and he couldn't have been clearer, he will balance the public health, the social, the mental health considerations with the economic, and that's why I think you will see a gradual lifting while respecting social distancing, as we've all got very used to doing over the last few weeks anyway. And actually, you know, to give you an example, a garden centre has far bigger aisles than a small Tesco extra branch, where it's far easier to sell uh, social distance. So I think you will see a, a much wider set of retail open within the next few weeks. Uh, Steve, finally, I've got to ask you about, about, about Brexit. You opposed a no-deal Brexit. You were thrown out of the party uh, as a result at yeah. one point. What are the prospects now of avoiding a no-deal, given that the government is still steadfastly refusing to rule out an extension? Yeah, so so the, the UK's chief negotiator and uh, Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, as far as I know, they are not involved in the direct fight against COVID-19. They have a job to do. They need to get on with doing it. I understand that they are, that they are doing exactly that and that progress is, progress is quite strong. Um, there is no reason why this shouldn't focus the minds. Let's face it, the EU have not had a particularly good war so far over COVID. They need to show their member states that they can still deliver. And uh, delivering a good, robust trade deal with a strong UK, I would suggest, will be one way that they can do that. I have never thought that no deal was good for this country. That's why we, you know, I had to stand up and, and did. We didn't leave with no deal. I think what will happen throughout the course of this year is a series of sector deals will be announced. 
to make sure that we don't leave with that dangerous cliff edge. And I think the EU have got a role to play in that, as have we. And I think Barnier can can emerge as the the hero of of all of this on that side of the pond. And uh, I look forward to him stepping up to the plate. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at some of the other stories making news in the world of politics. And we start in the retail sector, shops being given new guidelines about how they might operate when the lockdown eases. The British Retail Consortium and uh, Ustor, the, uh, the retail union there, uh, advice including closing or restricting access to toilets and changing rooms, restricting the number of shoppers, limiting or removing customer seating, the industry body and the union uh, advice there for non-food retailers. These are the people who, of course, who are still closed. But when it comes to open, it's going to look, by the sounds of it, very, very different. Imagine, Roger, buying clothes you haven't even tried on. Funnily enough, it's what I do all the time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there are plenty of other issues, of course, in all this. Um, not least, of course, the awful effect of uh, many families of being locked up together for a long time. Domestic abuse. Calls to the National Domestic Abuse Helpline rose by almost 50% and killing killings doubled in the weeks after the lockdown was announced, according to a report by the Home Affairs Select Committee. The report also highlights a lack of space in women's refuges, with 64% of requests for a space for victims declined in 2018-19. MPs want a new domestic violence strategy in the age of social distancing, plus more safe spaces in places like supermarkets where women can seek help. And then finally, we've had another depressing update on the economy. According to the EY Item Club, it'll take three years to recover fully from the fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. The group of economists is warning that almost half of all consumer spending in 2020 is at risk of either being delayed or lost completely. It says GDP is expected to collapse by 6.8% in 2020 before returning to positive growth of 4.5% in 2021. In the near term, EY sees the economy shrinking by 13% in the second quarter of the year. Of course, remember the ECB head, uh, Christine Lagarde, saying the European economy could uh, just diminish by 15%. So a lot of big figures out there. But let's take a bigger look on the virus effect on the economy, because we've been joined, I'm very pleased to say, by Dan Tomlinson, economist at the Resolution Foundation. Dan, thanks for being with us. Um, We're we're seeing all these figures thrown around. What's your uh, impression? What's your forecast as to the UK economic effect of all this? Hello, uh, thanks for having me. So we have um, conducted our own forecast. We've um, we have taken a look at past pandemics. We've had a really detailed look at some other pandemics that have hit uh, the UK and other countries across the world over the past decades, looking right back to um, to pandemics that happened up to 100 years ago. And we've seen actually that the hits to GDP are much bigger than those numbers that people were talking about, say, three or four weeks ago and we think that they're in the region of the numbers that people are now talking about so maybe a 10 percent hit to gdp this year if the lockdown or strict lockdown measures last for around 
three months, but we think things could be much worse. We've seen that lockdowns and the effects of viruses and the fact that it's often a second peak associated with them mean that we could be in for many more months of relatively strict um, uh, restrictions on economic activity and movement. And so GDP could fall by much more than 10% um, in 2020 with really long-lasting implications for our, our ability to return to, um, to trend growth and to get back that lost output. Right. So with that in mind, I've got to reopen the debate we're having with Steve Bryan in the first part of the programme around uh, damage to the economy versus extending the lockdown. We know the prime minister is cautious and sort of expects a potential second wave. Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee of backbenchers, saying, I think we should err on the side of openness and try to make sure that more people can get on with their lives. What happens then if the government doesn't heed that advice from Graham Brady? This is one of the, uh, I think, misconceptions that can sometimes come about is that people think um, a good health response is bad for the economy and a response that's good for the economy is bad for people's health. But really, more or less, though there is some nuance, these things are aligned with, with one another. If we lift the restrictions too early to help the economy, then it will likely be bad for our health. Um, and could end up in the long run actually being bad and worse for us all. If there is a second wave, we have to go into another set of lockdowns and firms who struggled um, in the past few weeks and in and in this first uh, phase will then struggle again later in the year. So really the government does, the evidence suggests the government is, is right in pursuing a careful and cautious approach about reopening the economy and letting us get back to some more normal levels of economic activity because if they go too far and um, loosen things too much then it could end up having knock-on effects in into the future yeah but dan isn't that the problem it's that balance you know we, we i suppose we all say yes in an ideal world we would be able to have the necessary health uh, assurances before we reopen but we know potentially that does cause issues because the longer you keep the economy closed the worse it will be i mean finding that middle line is going to be hugely difficult isn't it it is going to be really challenging for the government and i think that they need to start looking now at the schemes that they announced even just a few weeks ago to think about how they can make them uh, fit for this period of time that will come where we start to ease some of the restrictions and ease the lockdown so for example the job retention scheme. It's a really welcome scheme, but it's a very expensive scheme. And it also has, in some senses, it does have a design flaw because you, um, because businesses are only able to either furlough someone, so they work no hours whatsoever, or um, keep them employed um, at, um, relative, well, or have them employed at their normal hours. Whereas what we want to see happening is businesses who um, can have um, some employment taking place as restrictions are lifted, can take people off of furlough, but have them work relatively few hours because demand is still quite low, but then the government top up those wages still. So at the moment, the government only tops up furloughed um, employees' wages if they're off work entirely, whereas we think there should be a system like they have in Germany, where when people are working in reduced hours, they get their wages topped up too. That, that would incentivize businesses and workers to be able to start to return to work. Um, what about any groups falling between the cracks? I was reading in the Telegraph today that uh, the Chancellor could be speeding up the payments to the self-employed, for example, so they get them before June. Is there anybody here who's not being catered for enough? 
So the self-employed are definitely a group um, that um, are struggling in one sense at the moment because they haven't got that support from the government yet. Um, and as soon as that scheme can be made to work, um, the better. So once they do get the support, it is relatively um, more generous than to employees because uh, the, the self-employed just have to provide some evidence that their business has in some way been affected by the crisis. And then they'll get this grant of 2000 of, of up to £2,500 a month, um, which will be very helpful and should help those businesses continue. I think the group of people that have been least supported here are those who've experienced really large reductions in their hours but haven't had a top-up in their wages from the government. We can see from business surveys that around a third of employees have potentially experienced a fall in their hours. So they've had a big hit to their living standards, but it isn't, it isn't being cushioned by the government in the way that the hit to living standards um, for, for furloughed employees have been. And overall here, we can see that the people who've been most affected by this crisis are the young, and the low paid and that was what happened in the last crisis too in particular with young workers having the biggest pay squeeze and so we might see here some some groups of people who were hit in 2008 they were just leaving um university and really struggled to find um find their way in a in a really weak labor market who are now those people who are struggling for example with young children who are now off school and are going to find this crisis particularly difficult as well. So I think the government needs to, when it can, when we're beginning to emerge from the crisis and think about the effects across the whole population, think about that group as well. Well, I was going to pick up on that, actually, Dan, because one of the issues that a lot of people have pointed out is that the people at the front line of this, people who are suffering most, perhaps, literally putting their lives on the line, of course, are the frontline healthcare workers, but also the social care workforce as well. Mm. And they are, have been, some of the least well-paid people in the country uh, for what they do and the hours and the risks they take. Is there a moment perhaps for that to change? Economically, could that happen? So with um, care workers in, in particular, we know that around half of them are paid less than the real living wage, which is this voluntary rate of pay that many businesses and firms um, up and down the country have signed up to. Um, and... I think it would be welcome if there was a discussion about whether or not people who do some of the most important and today at least valued jobs in our society, looking after um, our grandparents and our parents, the people in most need who are most vulnerable, whether or not those people should be paid more. And yes, you're right, there's this general um, theme here that's emerging in this crisis is that you've got workers who are on the front line, those key workers who are putting their health at risk because they're not able then to stay at home. They are interacting with other people on a day-to-day -day basis in order to keep things going, both the people who um, are in the hospitals, but also people who sit behind the checkout or who drive the buses, whose health is at risk in, in order to keep things going, to keep us safe um, and to get people who need to um, get to work, to work on time and things like that. Those people are more likely to be low paid and they're also much more likely to be women as well. But then you have another group of people who are also low paid, who've experienced this economic hit. So the people who work in those sectors that are now shut down. So both of those groups, key workers who are more exposed to the health risk and those in shutdown sectors who, who have experienced the economic pain of this crisis in, in a more concentrated way, they are much more likely to be low paid than average. And so, this crisis will have very significant distributional effects out into the future.
Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.